Welcome to the Beyond Jiu-Jitsu podcast. I am your co-host, Kieran Lefebvre, joined by... Is this where I come in? Yes. Adam Child? Adam Child. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, owner of Alliance Sydney, uh, co-host with of the podcast with K-Dog. What's up, bro? Woof. K-Dog got to eat. This is episode number 35, and we're talking about how to deal with side control mount. Side control on the bottom. It's not a great spot to be. No. No. Um, look, before we go into that, I don't know, man. I saw you yesterday, but I also feel like I haven't – maybe it's because I haven't been caffeinated yet. I feel yeah, like I'm not quite to, switched on. To get I got really stuck into that coffee there. Yeah, I had a bit of a incident before leaving the house this morning to go teach with my dog. And uh, my, no, my dog's fine. My dog just made an unnecessary mess. Uh, and then I had to spend time cleaning that. Uh, I didn't get to get caffeinated. Ooh. Then I had to go deal with my really annoying student, Anthony. Oh, my God. He just asked so many Shout questions. Shout out to Anthony. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony's a legend. Um, this is my first coffee. By this time, I would have already had multiple. Yeah. So I'm a bit, yeah, man, this is my, a bit like low my on third. energy. Yeah. It's like 8 o'clock in the morning. This is my third. <laughs> I wish – Um. actually, I've been thinking I need to dial back my caffeine intake. Nah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it? Yeah. All right. I know, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. You could tell me the um, what is it you said? The what's the if you have however many grams? About four hundred milligrams for someone your size, you could probably go like five hundred or so. You're how much? How much? How many milligrams is in the average? Like if you get a, a, a like espresso, yeah, about eighty, eighty milligrams so of caffeine. You, so four co- coffees a day. Yeah, yeah. But that's a double shot. Yeah, it's fine. So. It's about you know, <laughs> I think a double shot's around one twenty ish. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, my numbers are probably off. Don't worry about it. I don't worry about it. Like so long as how many? How many? How many? Like how many coffees would you drink a day? Depending on the day, but normally three to four. Yeah, and but, but the the problem is like it depends on the individual. But we said that we the other day when we were talking about it, you you don't drink coffee after twelve. Did you? Yeah, say, around right? about. Yeah, I tried to. Avoid That's a lot of coffees to fit in in like let's say you wake up at six, which you probably yep. do, being an ex military person, probably yep. used to getting up early. And yep. I know your your partner works quite early anyway, so yeah. your household is awake. But that's a lot of coffees to drink in six hours. Well, I wake up, I wait an hour, I have one. Is that is there a particular then, reason you wait an hour? Yeah, so it, it's to do with cortisol release. So if you have a coffee immediately after waking up, it's going to inter- interfere with your natural rise and dip of cortisol. I don't even know what cortisol is. Cortisol is like a stress hormone. Right. It's, uh, it's what people associate with like high cortisol levels equals high stress. But cortisol levels will ebb and flow naturally throughout the day. And right. they're, they're highest as soon as you wake up, right? And, you know, there's a good reason for that. It's to, to wake you up. Right, it's your body's natural response to. So to if get you have caffeine too morning, early, the it can inter interfere with, with your cortisol levels, l- lowering yeah. back down. Well, no, it spikes it. Right, so it. Caffeine yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in- saying like, so you shouldn't have the coffee because yes. then you're not giving it time to sort of yeah exactly. level out as it should post waking exactly. up. Exactly. Yeah, so I they actually say, didn't know that. Like they say, you should wait at least ninety minutes. I just go sixty because fuck it. Um, and some people like because no, you got hours. shit to do, bro. Yeah, man, I got shit to do. I want my my coffee. Uh, so. Yeah, I wait around about an hour depending on the day um, and then have my first coffee and then about an hour later, like pretty much by the time I finish it, I just make another one. Like I back-to-back the first two. Yeah. Uh, then I'll have a bit of a break and then I'll have like one or two more. So like yeah. most days I have, say my average is like three and a half. Now, I don't think caffeine or coffee, if you're treating it like that, is a problem. 
particularly considering I'm a slower caffeine metabolizer. So some people, they can have coffee just before they go to bed and they're fine. Yeah. Now, it depends on what camp you fall into. So some people are just naturally fast caffeine metabolizers. Like it's out of their system in time for them to go to sleep and that's fine. But other people just have a very, very high caffeine tolerance because it is a drug at the end of the day. And if you take it all the time, like any drug, you're going to have a high tolerance to it. So, you know, it's still interfering with your sleep. If you're a normal slash slower caffeine metabolizer uh, and you have a very high caffeine tolerance, it's still going to interfere with your sleep. There's there's, um a... I mean, there's a lot of actual, you know, like clickbait, clickbait uh, articles as well that say, say, uh, you know, caffeine improves your jujitsu. Have you seen a bunch of those? No, no I haven't. haven't seen any of them. There's heaps of them no. that are that are like um, that say like, oh, not improves your jujitsu. Obviously, it's not like you can drink coffee and not train and get better at jujitsu. But I guess it's just no different i've never read the articles because like they're pre-workout Is that's like, the yeah, way i take yeah, it that's you mad, know? mad clickbait of course like there's, there's absolutely no doubt that i have read so many not only research on it, but like meta-analysis on caffeine, which for those of the audience that don't know, meta-analysis is a combination of many studies and they look at the body of uh, research and make a conclusion based on all studies, right? So a study is designed to answer a question, right? mm. a hypothesis, whereas a meta-analysis answers the same question, but over a diverse array of data and tries to utilize different models to make one set of data match another or be comparable to another. So that's essentially in a nutshell what a meta-analysis is. So they have more weight behind them. There are so many meta-analysis out there talking about caffeine and how it affects athletic performance and sport performance. And there's absolutely no doubt it is unequivocal that caffeine does improve performance in the vast majority of the population. Yeah. There's, um, I mean, the, the episode, I forget which number it was. I'm not bringing up the spreadsheet. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but when we spoke about steroids, uh, are there, I mean, it's not an illegal substance, right? It is. It is to a certain level. Yeah. So, yeah, so um, are there certain sports or whatever that, yeah, don't allow you to take caffeine? So or? the Olympic, like the gold standard, right, we'll, we'll just refer to the, yeah, um, the Olympic Committee yeah. and WADA which is World Anti-Doping Agency. Yep. So there is caffeine is illegal if it's over a certain threshold in your blood. And oh, off okay. the top of my head, I cannot recall uh, what the threshold is, but it's stupidly high. Like it would have to be it's, an absurd amount. It is. It's so yeah. high that if you had that much caffeine in your system, it's going to be detrimental to your athletic performance, not beneficial. Right, right. So there, there is a cutoff point where too much caffeine is actually bad for you. And it is around, in one dose, around that 400 milligrams. If you're taking more than 400 milligrams, it's going to affect your your performance. And for those that are avid users of pre-workout, a strong pre-workout generally has around about 200 milligrams of caffeine. So if you're double dosing, a strong pre-workout, you're getting around that 400 milligrams. By the time you get up to around 600 milligrams, it's going to be bad for your performance. You're actually yeah. going to decrease your your performance. Just smash an eight ball, bro. Yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> Racket, son. Sluggos. Sluggo. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's a caffeine tangent. All right. Well, uh, that's given me some time for my caffeine to do its job. Yeah. <laughs> so side control amount or essentially uh, – you know, being on the bottom, bad positions. Mm. So, I mean, before I want to talk about 
what I believe are the most important things to yep. understand to to deal with those positions is what ha- as as a white belt, right? What have you sort of found? What have you already learned from from because yeah. you know spending time on the bottom, yeah. right? You're a big strong dude. You've already learned that you know against a lighter person, you may be able to get away with bench, bench pressing. pressing them oh, off, yeah, but you've yeah. already trained for long enough that you know that's not the the correct way or the mm. most efficient way, mm-hmm. even if you are against a lighter person, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you've also been against bigger guys that you haven't been able to just muscle out of, but you've also been the littler guy against, you know, we have a, a one guy at the gym, Joe, who's a big ex-rugby player, super strong. Very hard and he could off. bench press you off. Actually, it reminds me, uh, I don't know if you got the chance last night to watch a training um, Carl uh, versus Joey. Carl and Joey. Did yeah. you watch any of their roles? Yeah, I, did. I I sort of saw some of it like from the, you know, the peripheral. And yeah, so, it looked wild. Yeah, so. so Joey's a we've mentioned him a lot. He'll be on the podcast uh in some in a future episode. Brown belt. Carl, a new guy who's moved into the area. He's already a black belt, but he's a big like I mean, the best way to describe him is he looks like a Viking. Yeah, he's huge. Man, and it was so funny watching them roll. Like it was a great role, you know, black belt and brown belt, good technical role, but also just like Carl's a big, strong dude. And Joey's no no joke either. Like Joey's incredibly strong and mobile. Yeah. But man, at one point, like, yeah, man, like <laughs> Carl's just like pretty much doing Turkish get-ups and Joey's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it was good. It was a, it was a good hard role to watch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it looks, looks intense. So as a, as a white belt, what if what are your thoughts on on the position? Yeah. Not the position. I mean, it's not a position you want to be in. But when you're on that side control mount position on the bottom, what do you I only th- have really realistically when I'm on the bottom? I have one priority, and that's buggy choke. <laughs> buggy choke all day, son. Buggy choke all day, bro. That's actually nah, I hate buggy so. Chokes. We got the um, you know coming into 2022 we'll have the competition starting back up and mm. i believe that will be our team's strategy yeah. it will be to pull side control and buggy choke yep. right uh, i don't want to see none of this guard bullshit yeah. <laughs> you pull side control and you buggy choke yeah man it's and buggy choke is you know i'm definitely lean to the side of man you don't try to choke people from shit positions right you know, one is that the beginners always make the mistake is being in someone's closed guard and trying to submit them and then just oh, getting yeah. swept or armbarred. Yeah. And then they refer, refer to, um, I think it was Rick Story. I um, believe that was his name. He was a UFC fighter and he managed to be in someone's closed guard and submit them with an arm triangle. And it's okay. like, you know, and it's like, oh, yeah, man, just because this one dude managed to get away with something doesn't mean it's correct. And – but, you know, the Hoodalo brothers have proved that it's not just a one-off that they've gotten away with this buggy joke. You know, they've people have gone into fights against them being well aware of the buggy choke and they still hit it. Like, I mean, there's no doubt it works. I've never had it thrown up on me by someone of, of that caliber. But I remember in a role watching um, Josh Hinger and one of the Hoodalo brothers rolling and, uh, and they tapped – uh, Josh with the buggy choke and he tapped and he just straight away was like, that's so fucking stupid, but it's so tight, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so, I mean, if it works, bro, it works. Uh, so I ain't joking. We pull in side control, bro. Buggy <laughs> chokes all day. Yeah. No, but uh, jokes aside, how do you feel about 
like as a white belt, like let's say you've got another, someone listening is even newer than you, right? Maybe they're zero stripes or one stripe or whatever, you know, and they're asking you like, oh man, geez, what do I, what do I do? What would your advice be? Yeah. So my advice Maybe it's going to be the same as mine because you've probably already heard my advice yeah, before. Just, well, look, I think what I'm thinking about when I'm in side control on the bottom, obviously, is improve my position, escape. That's yeah. that's that's a given, right? So the way I do that is, I think, particularly if I'm talking to someone that's pretty new, maybe they know enough jujitsu to to know what I'm talking about, but not enough to understand concepts. Is it's a bit counterintuitive, naturally. And you, you see this in like street fights and shit all the time. Naturally, when you're in a position similar to that, your natural instinct is to turn away. Yeah. Right? Or to push them away. Or to right? push them yeah. away. Yeah. In jujitsu, when someone has a strong base, when someone's being heavy, unless, of course, you are just so much stronger than them and you can bench press them off, which, you know, I've I've done many times, um, <laughs> you know, frust- out of frustration, just like, get the fuck off me, just like push them off. But if, you know, say weight and strength is equal, maybe they are stronger, like we, we said in the outset, you want to you wanna be turning into them. So I try to create space by bridging in and then create that negative space by bringing myself back down before, you know, gravity brings them down on top of me and get my frames in. Like elbows to knees, frame, push away, you know, incrementally improve my position, get one, one, uh, one knee in, the other knee in. So yeah, it's, it's hard to describe, you know, a standard escape over an audio format. But I suppose the biggest key concept to understand for me is it's counterintuitive. You want to push into them, not turn away from them, if that makes sense. Like bridge into them to create yourself space. It's all about creating space to get your frames back in to regain regain your guard. And once you've regained your guard, you're good to go. So I don't actually mind being on side control on the bottom because- Is that why I see you there all the time? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I tend to pull side control. No, it's because I'm working on my buggy choke. Yeah, yeah. But I, in terms of- being in a bad position, it's that's not your most hated bad no, position. No, no, shit, no. I yeah. find it, I find it more difficult to escape from mount. Um, than side control. Than side, wait, yeah, I don't really have a problem, you know, for my skill level. I'd say, um, and you know, I let other people and yourself be the judge. But I feel like I don't have a significant problem dealing with side control mount. I have a problem dealing with getting people off of mount, right. full mount, yeah. Um, back. Yeah, I can defend my back decently. Um, you know, cause I can cop some fucking jaw chokes. I don't yeah, mind that yeah, yeah. cops of face pressure, but yeah. So out of all, all three bad positions, if you will, I think, uh, it's my most preferred bad position to be in. Yeah. So, yeah, I can't disagree with, uh, what you said. Definitely. I mean, a lot of things in jujitsu are counterintuitive, you know, you typically want to, so I love it, man, you know, push people or whatever. And, yeah. and the, what your intuition tells you to do is typically wrong. But think about it. Like, Think about it for a second. That's why jiu-jitsu is so fucking awesome. Because if someone comes in off the street, as you've said before, they're going to default to what they know. Their strength, they're going to brute yeah. force, they're going to do things that are literally the worst thing you can that, do yeah, in yeah. that scenario. Yeah. And being a jiu-jitsu practitioner, you you see it and almost like get giddy and yeah. like capitalize on it, right? <laughs> He's giving me his arm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got his neck now. The best one, honestly, the best one is when they do turn away from you. Inside control because it's free back take. Yeah, I mean, but in saying that, sometimes you're forced to turn away to then invert and yeah, whatever yeah, and course. regard. Of course. I mean, I'm not. I don't really want to go into techniques to escape the positions because it's, <laughs> <laughs> because it's just too difficult to do 
over audio, but uh, I do just want to explain what you meant by negative space. So I use this term all the time. And if no one knows what I mean by negative space or what Kieran was saying by negative space, um, that I'm coining it. Negative space, right? I love using that term to, to describe a, a, a particular movement. So if we look at side control, if you're wanting to create negative space or you're, what you're trying to do is get space between your chest and their chest, right? So you can't bench press them off as, as Kieran was saying. So what he was saying by bridging into them is you're creating, by bridging into them, you're going to create space between your back and the mat. You haven't created space between your chest. You're still chest to chest, but you've lifted them with your bridge. So you're still chest to chest, but now there's space between your back and the mat. And then that's the negative space. So then instead of pushing them off you, you push yourself away from them. Mm. And then you fill that negative space by pushing your, yourself away from them. And there's your space between your chest and their chest, right? So that's what we mean by negative space. Another very well-known example of negative space is when you're trying to do an arm bar from closed guard and you're trying to drag the elbow across to, to your belly button and you lift your hip. And then as you drop your hip out of the way, you drag their arm across. So that's I've never thought about it in that context before. In, what do you mean? I've never, I've never like applied the concept of negative space to that position before. That makes sense. The armbar or the side control? The armbar. The arm right. Bar. Yeah. So that's another really well-known example of, of, of negative space, right? And, you know, that's, there's lots of positions where you create this negative space and then you fill that space. Okay. Um, so that's one, one definite concept that you can think about, but. One of when we're talking about bad positions and escaping them, and for my students, they've probably heard me say a lot of this before, but people need to embrace the mindset of escaping bad positions. And that's that it will never be easy unless the skill difference is so absurd, right? It will never be easy to escape a bad position. And the reason I'm saying that is because you get a lot of newer students who perhaps haven't fully come to terms with the reality that jiu-jitsu is a combat, uh, a full contact combat sport. And they might think that they learn a move or a technique and think it's kind of similar to karate or taekwondo or whatever. And it should yeah. just work. If yep. execute said move, get said result. But that's not the case, right? So then they'll try a side control escape and it doesn't work. And then they turn to the instructor and go, oh, I was trying this escape. It doesn't work. Like, no, it's, it's well, yes, maybe they were doing it incorrectly, but let's say they were doing it correctly. Like, okay, just because it, you, it didn't work that time doesn't mean the technique doesn't work. It's, it's because maybe, well, I mean, lots of factors, but maybe they just didn't try hard enough. Right? It will always be difficult to escape a bad position. You're at a disadvantage. And it's as simple as saying, you know, if you were playing a game of soccer and, you know, you go into the second half of the match and you're five goals down, is it possible to claw it back and win? Yes, but will it ever be easy? Okay, only if it's bloody Brazil against 
whatever community college team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Then it's like, okay, you know, you've got Brazil versus a bunch of 12 year old kids, like, of course. But, you know, so unless the skill difference is massive, like, even if it was, yeah, Brazil versus Australia, right? Okay, Australia is not known as, you know, one of the best soccer teams in the world. Brazil is. I mean, 5 0, if Brazil started the second half down five goals, right? Could they claw it back and win? It's possible, right? But if they didn't, would you think like, would you look at their entire team and go, oh, this is wrong and it's not working and this? No, man, you like, it was such a disadvantage to start with, okay? So it will always be hard and you've got to embrace that, right? If, you know, the same, the same way that you're lying there thinking, you know, oh, I couldn't get out. I've had times where I've lost side control. I've been the person on top and my opponent's regarded. And then you say to yourself the same thing man, how did they regard, like, I'm in the better, more dominant position. If you had a clone of yourself and you started inside control, you should never get out, mm. right? All things being equal and you, you're in that position, you should never get out. You're at a disadvantage. Why should you, right? So that's something super, super important to embrace, right? It will always be hard, you know, if, if there's – it doesn't even have to be that close, the skill difference. For me as a black belt – Escaping side control against a competent, you know, blue belt or a big, strong, competent white belt, you know, again, Joe, do you think escaping his side control is easy? I know it's not. <laughs> he's not, bro. He's like 120 kilo ex-rugby player. Not 120 kilos of over- – well, he's not anymore. He's actually uh, intentionally trying to lose a lot of muscle mass. But, you know, prior uh, – six months ago, he's like 110, 120 kilos of muscle, bro, and he's a competent white belt. It's not easy for anyone to escape that side control. Yeah, 100%. You know, you always have to work for it. Yeah. So you really need to embrace it. It's hard, will always be hard. On the back of that point that I want people to come to terms with is also coming to terms with, and this could be applied to escapes or just jujitsu in general, is that not everything you try works even when executed more or less perfectly. And what I mean by that is just because you attempt an escape or a pass or a sweep or a submission and it doesn't work or it didn't work that time doesn't, doesn't mean it doesn't work, okay? It's, you're, ha- you're trying to execute a said move against a guy or girl who's trying to not let you do that while they're also trying to execute techniques on you. Mm. So uh, a perfect phrase that someone once said to me is, you know, uh, a a boxer doesn't expect 100% of the punches he throws to land, right? Imagine if you were a boxer and every time one of your punches didn't land, you like got in your own head and started doubting yourself. Oh man, I didn't land that one. I'm not going to be able to land any. And I see that a lot, you know, people try to pass and maybe their pass got shut down and then they already start getting in their own head thinking, man, I gave everything on that pass and you know, and he managed to keep his guard. Oh, I'm never going to pass this guy. No, man, just keep at it. You know, not every pass, sweep, side control, escape, mount, escape will work. Because maybe that guy on the bottom thinking, holy fuck, only just defended that. Exactly, this guy's right? Me. Exactly. He might be thinking, lying there thinking, oh, man, that could not have been closer to passing me without passing me. If yep. he does that again, I'm fucked. like, I'm fucked. Yeah. Right? And you talk about that a lot when you, when, um, when you talk about competition. So for, for our listeners, what Adam says 
during the first 15 to 20 seconds of a competition, you need to blitz, right? So you go out, be first, go hard, blitz for your 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 uh, takedown, blitz for whatever your guard pass, if they they pull guard or whatever you're, you're doing, go at it with a ferocity and an intensity because if nothing else, even if you are not successful, you will get into your opponent's mind and they will start to doubt themselves. They'll be thinking, holy shit, who is this animal that I've stepped on the mats with? Yeah, and I wish I could take credit for coming up with that. Uh, Bro, you can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We've established no one's listening. You know? exactly. <laughs> no, uh, as much as I wish I could take credit for that mindset and the drill that we specifically do to simulate that type of training, that's something that uh, we used to do in Brazil all the time. And I mean, I assume it came from Fabio, but the person who used to really explain it, put into words the idea of the mental side of the fight that you the mental advantage you can get was was Michael Lange. He would he would talk about that, you know, unless you're at the black belt level at a big competition where you know your opponent and you can have a specific game plan, mm-hmm. nine times out of 10, you're fighting against someone, you have no idea their strengths, their weaknesses, you've never seen them before, mm-hmm. you know nothing about them. So yeah, we do a specific drill to simulate that first 15 seconds and exactly like you said, that 10, 15 seconds of intensity, it does a, a few things. One, it switches you on, you know, really like puts, it's kind of, like jumping in the deep end of a pool or jumping in the cold water opposed to walking down the steps, like you're yeah. in, right? So it switches you on straight away. Uh, it can put you into the, give you the positional advantage that you perhaps wanted. So it might be a blitz pass or maybe it was pulling guard and getting into a nice well-established deep half guard or whatever yeah. your position is. And yeah, like you said, if you make zero progress positionally, you've got that mental advantage. They don't, your opponent doesn't know that that was just a 10, 15 seconds blitz and now you've settled in. They're thinking, oh my God, I can't do this for another X amount of minutes. Mm-hmm. And I've done that to opponents and I've been on the receiving end of that. You know, I remember when at Purple Likewise, Belt, yeah. I f- when at Purple Belt I fought Zaki Bayentz who unfortunately recently left Alliance to start his own team. But uh, I mean, I'm fortunate for Alliance, but I'm super Did stoked. fight him? Back at Purple Belt before he I was joined. about to say, I didn't think you guys would be the same weight. You must – what were you fighting at? <laughs> well, no, because I used to fight middle heavy. Oh, and that's Azak, 88, 88, 88 in the gear. Oh, same yeah. as me. There you go. And Zach used to fight middle heavy. And then I think now he fights middleweight. Yeah, I believe he, he went down because yeah. I was stalking he's him been, a little while ago. <laughs> he's been down at middleweight for a while. But he left Alliance to start his own team, Dream Art, which uh, super stoked for him. He's got Nicholas Marigali's training with him now, who also left Alliance to train with Zach and a bunch of beasts. So they're going to do really well. Super uh, excited to see what comes out of that team. And he's a he's a world champion, he's by the a, way, for 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 the listeners. Yeah, and I and he's got pretty high intensity style of jujitsu. And yeah, we fought at Purple Belt, and man. God, it just got like demolished that first sort of whatever it was, 30 seconds or something, just relentless intensity. And it just instantly like it shocks you, puts you on the back foot, yeah. you know. It's kind of like being pushed in the cold water opposed yeah. to jumping in, you know, you're not prepared for you're it. I didn't even terms. I didn't even know there was a swimming pool behind me <laughs> and I've been pushed in this ice cold water, yeah. you know, whereas he's the one who jumped in and knew knew what was coming. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, 
But, but just on the on like we've gotten well off track of escaping mountain side control, but yeah, <laughs> getting into your you know opponent's mindset. If you trained, if you trained for long enough, I mean, uh, I've experienced this a lot, particularly in the gym. But even even in competition, you can tell when they give up. You can 100, tell a hundred percent. Like when I'm when I'm with a particular training partner, and even if they still might be fighting, they haven't completely conceded. But you can tell they're tired. And they're thinking in their mind, holy fuck, I'm I'm screwed here, or like this, I'm I'm losing this. Yeah. You pick up on that, it's like you fucking smell it. You I, sense it. And then when I get that itch, when oh, I sense so it, I double down. Yeah. And I put it on as hard as I can. I double whatever effort I'm going just to just to drive it home. I'm trying to get into that mindset. Yeah. Like for competition, obviously, but it's fun. I remember <laughs> the you know, one of my small conquests, right? Uh was back at Blue Belt fighting these selectives to win tickets to the US. And this was when JT, who we had on on episode 29, we did our, our park sessions, these strength and conditioning sessions in the park to lead up to these selectives. And I remember for me, emotionally and psychologically, it was this competition was was huge and really significant for me, not because of the tickets that it would pay for me to go to the US but it was I had three dudes I had to fight because you had to get invited to it was like the the circuit which was the Paulista which is the state or the the state São Paulo but like the circuit was the Paulista circuit and so you had to accumulate a certain amount of points throughout the year doing all their competitions to be invited to fight the selectives so you know, chances are you were fighting people who you had seen at the circuit throughout the year. Of course. And so, and it was split. I can't remember. It was split into two weight divisions. I think it was, so it was not absolute, but it was something like uh, everyone up to whatever it was, 88 kilos or something, and then everyone over or something like that. That's it really was, unfair. Yeah. For, oh, That's, I can't remember what, what it was, but, but it was. It, yeah. Cause like if, if you are 88 kilos, you're laughing. If you're like 70 kilos, you're fucked. Yeah, but I mean, at least if you're 70 kilos, you're not going against a 100 kilo guy. You know, that's better than just <laughs> flat out absolute. Yeah, you true. Know? All right. Anyway, it was split. So I only had three dudes I had to fight. The first dude was some guy I didn't know. But then the next two dudes were both guys that I had to, that I lost to previously throughout the year. So psychologically, it was a, mm. a big thing. And the so I won my first fight then the second fight I beat that dude I can't even remember how but then the last fight uh I remember breaking this guy so JT was there screaming for me uh and the guy pulled guard and I got a sneaky little uh trip as he pulled guard so I got two points for that and then I can't remember exactly how the fight played out but I was super tired, but I had done these huge, huge strength and conditioning like preparation for this tournament. So I just kept telling myself, I was like, it's not possible. It is, it's the, it is not possible that I am more tired than this guy. Like yeah. there's, there was not a shadow of doubt in my mind, even though yep. I was super gassed. Yep. It just wasn't possible because JT had pushed me so hard, pretty much to tears in preparation for this competition. Like really... Uh, we, yeah, we spoke about in episode 29 how how kind of not giving a shit he can be in his training approach, in his coaching approach. And at least for me, that's how what works for me. And he would coach me in a way that worked for me, right? 
And yeah, like right towards, and I remember, I remember JT screaming, you must pass. It was like the opposite of the Gandalf, like oh, Lord yeah, of the you Rings, you shall not pass. pass. It was like the opposite. He's like, you will pass. And I ended up being more scared of JT than my <laughs> opponent. I was like, holy fuck, if I don't pass, he's going to kill me. <laughs> and, uh, and I can't remember exactly how it played out, whether I passed or he turned to turtle or something, but there was, he kind of tried to turn into me as if he was escaping side control or as if he was trying to come up on a single leg or something like that. And I remember just cross-facing him so hard and like, and just being like, no, like you're not getting up. And I just felt his soul leave his body, bro. Like I just felt him give up at that moment. And it was, and that, and I just knew that there was only like 30 seconds left or it was towards the end of the match. And that feeling was then, you know, intensified by the fact that winning this fight was winning me a ticket to the US as well. So, but yeah, that feeling when you can feel when someone gives up, right? Even when they're fighting, you feel it. You feel it. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's like uh, we, we, I don't know what the expression would be in English, but in Portuguese, we say sangue no olho, which means like, yeah, like the smell of blood, I yeah. guess, would what it would translate to. 100%. You know, and it's... It's, it's not about, like, it's not even about trying to hurt anyone. Oh, it's, no, it's, not at all. It's, you know, and for those that are listening, obviously, you would train jiu-jitsu, you would understand. It's it's competition in its purest form. It's you versus someone else. Your strength versus someone else's strength. Your technique versus someone else's technique. And particularly in that scenario, when it is a competition, you have adrenaline, you have you know, your team cheering for you. You've gone through horrendous sessions to prepare for it. So that would have been, you know, incredible. I remember it felt good. And yeah, just, so it was like those, those, the three factors of it being fighting guys who I'd lost to before, Mm. uh, feeling the guy give up and then that it was paying for tickets Mm. to the U S you know, as well as having, you know, JT there like coaching me It just all that combined. It was, it felt amazing. And um, and at the time it felt like a big, even though looking back, I kind of go, oh, it was just like a little blue belt fight. Like it didn't really matter. But at the time it was super important to me. And I remember it was even locally in Sao Paulo was even televised. So my wife at home, like wow. watched, watched it live, like, you know, s- seeing me, maybe not televised, was it maybe live streamed, but it was even a bit before you had the, the ease of live streaming that we do nowadays. But I remember like she saw it and stuff. So it was cool. Yeah. Anyway, way off topic of escaping bad positions, mountainside control. So the other really core point that I want to talk about is that buzzword of concepts. And I don't know if it was last episode or the one before that I briefly spoke about concepts. It was last episode, yeah. Was it? Yeah. Oh, shit. Well, I don't want to go into it again, but it's just – really the way people are getting so good so quick nowadays, okay? And the concept for escaping bad positions, and this is a bit easier to understand with side control opposed to mount because it's a bit more black and white, is yes, you can learn your specific side control escapes, which you need to learn, but those escapes need to be built on a core understanding of the position and and the strengths and weaknesses of the position. Every single position, technique, whatever in jiu-jitsu has pros and cons. Right? There is not a single technique that is, is foolproof. Proof. Otherwise, that's the only one people would need to learn. For side control, what I try to get people to understand is that the person on top 
can't really control your shoulders and your hips at the same time, right? They can a little bit, you know, the typical side control where they have both arms on their side of your body. So they would have a cross face and they would also be kind of hugging your hips or your quads so you can't regard. But they're kind of 50-50. If they have standard side control, most of their control is on your shoulders. If they have a sort of- What's standard side control? So standard side control, they got the cross face, they got the like the underhook and their hands connected, right? If they have a side control that might be, you could describe it as a little more judo-esque, if you will, kind of that switched base and sitting heavy on the hips, you can't really move your hips, but your shoulders are, are more or less free. And the goal for that side control is to collect the near side arm, correct? I mean, can be, yeah. Like what's, uh, That's called a scarf? Oh, yeah. So that position is a, is a scarf hold, right? Kind of that... Uh, like almost wrestling? like a wrestling sort yeah. of position. But yeah, I mean, if you're sitting even further back near the hips, I'm trying ah, to so I'm, switch base further back on the hips. Yeah, so yeah. for example, if you were on someone's right hand side of their body, you would be on your right hip. That's right. With your right arm over, over collecting and you're kind of sandwiching it, it yeah. together. I, I'm in that position all the time. And so the best defense for that position for the person on, on the bottom is that to frame well, I mean, their arms. maybe the, the point the point I'm trying to make, and I'm trying to describe it sort of vaguely on purpose because okay. I, I can't, I don't want to try to explain a technique through audio. Oh, when, give it a go. When, <laughs> when some people are still thinking, wait, 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 you're doing what now? Yeah. But just think about it like this. If, if you, they're either more or less, they either have dominant control of your shoulders mm-hmm. or they have dominant control of your hips or they have a little bit of both, okay? So if they have dominant control of your shoulders, ignore what side control escape you need to do, right? And just think more about the fact that you're going to use the mobility of your hips to free your shoulders. If you understand that concept, and then on top of that concept, you build your side control escapes, it's gonna make more sense and it's gonna work better, right? If they're controlling your hips, you use the mobility of your shoulders to free your hips. Like I was explaining in that in that position I was describing where you're in that judo switch base controlling their hips. They're going to frame, wiggle their shoulders back, walk yeah, them back. Yeah, exactly. Try or, and clear their knee, knee line out. Or they're not going to be able to if, – if you're sandwiched on my hips in side control – you don't really have control of my shoulders. So you can't really stop me turning onto my side very much, right? So that turning onto my side can become turning to turtle Mm -hmm. and then turning to turtle can become a scramble or sitting back to guard or whatever it is. I'm using my shoulder mobility to free my hips, okay? So understanding the, the concept of, you know, asking yourself, okay, what part of my body don't they really have control of and I'm going to use that to rescue the part of my body that's trapped. Opposed to just trying to, you know, if my shoulders are pinned and I try to use my shoulders to free my shoulders, you know, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's, it's like when people defend leg locks, right? Why do you think that when you look at high-level leg lockers like Craig and Gordon and all that, Pretty much, for example, let's let's go back to some of Craig's first instructionals and he'll go into the saddle and the very first thing he'll do from the saddle is reach and grab their other leg, right? Why? Because they need that other free leg to escape the position, 
In other words, they use their free leg to rescue their trapped leg. So that's why leg lockers like to do what's called leg laces, where you kind of essentially get the your opponent's legs all tangled up. Mm. So both legs are trapped. That way they, they don't have a free leg to rescue the leg that you're actually submitting them on. And then we that would tie into that old adage of position before submission, right? No, buggy choke. We, we, we established <laughs> that at the beginning, Kieran. Right, right. Sorry, I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> That's why you're still a white belt, bro. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I'm going to hit 10 buggy chokes. <laughs> yeah, of course, right? Uh, but, I mean, if you can – embrace those two things right i honestly believe these are not only the most effective way for you to deal with these positions but also just really ties in with why people are getting so good so quick i spoke about it last episode i don't want to rant about it again but one really accept and embrace that it's always hard right if they're you know if you're a purple belt escaping a, I mean, like I said, even if it's a black belt, give me a good, competent white, blue belt, you know, that's similar to my weight. It can be hard work, right? It'll always be hard getting out of bad positions, okay? Always. And not every time it'll pay off. Not every punch thrown lands, and that's fine. Just throw another punch, right? Just try again. Keep trying. And this is why specific training is so important, right? So embracing that it'll always be hard and it's okay for it to be hard. Second thing, really understand that you use the free part of your body to rescue the trapped part. And that kind of goes for all positions. Like I said, leg locks or guard retention, whatever. But it's really evident in side control. If your hips are pinned, use the mobility of your shoulders. What do you do if they're controlling a little bit of both? Well, you're kind of going to work a little bit of both, almost like going left, right, left, right, left, right, like almost like wiggling something loose. Okay, and then when if they, as you trying to wiggle it loose, they settle into more controlling your hips. Well, then use your shoulders or vice versa. So right? the worst thing, or you, you might do. have a knack for one over the other. You might be, let's say, wrestlers. If you would come from a wrestling background, for anyone who doesn't know, in college wrestling, you typically have to pin the shoulders, right? So because of that, wrestlers are incredibly difficult to hold down flat right? They're really good at not having their shoulders on the mat. So you might have a knack for either freeing your shoulders better or freeing your hips better. So if your opponent's controlling a bit of both, you're just going to do what you're better at, right? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes perfect sense, I think, I hope. And you know, anyone listening who trains with me or has been a student of mine long enough would have heard me speak about this, but you know, you could needs to be hammered home. It's hard, man. It's hard to escape shit positions. Always use the part of your body that's more mobile to free the part that's trapped. Mm. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the worst thing you can do in a bad position is nothing and let your opponent settle in and work their submission game. Because if you're working, you know, within reason, you don't want to spaz out. But if you're working your escapes and they're working hard to stop your escapes, they're not you know, probably not working to submit you. I, I had a role with Joey, the our brown belt, our brown belt, because he's mine too. <laughs> yeah, uh, you gave yeah. Him, yeah, you gave him his brown. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I was there. Nah. <laughs> um, Joey, the brown belt, uh, the chains at our gym. Um, I was rolling with him and you were saying to me, you were coaching me through it and saying like, you could tell that I was relaxing in the position in, a, in side control at the bottom. And you're like, you know, don't do nothing. Don't let him like playing defensive is the, is the worst way 
to to play it right against a higher belt. I have to be aggressive in my in my defense. Yeah, uh, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule, mm. always. But I would agree with that just as a general bit of advice. It's no different to the the saying the best defense is a good offense, right? Uh, if if you're working your escapes, right, and then your opponent has to work just to maintain the position. You know, it's hard for them to attack. But, yeah, there's always exceptions to the rule because then, you know, someone might say, oh, but, you know, when you start trying to escape the position, that's when you open yourself up. To st- that's when your frames start extending, whatever. You start opening yourself up for them to go to mount or take an armbar or whatever. I'm like, yeah, that's true as well, you know. But if you had to choose between being offensive or not, I'd be like, yeah, be offensive, right? And then an ex- if you do just sit there and do nothing, right uh, like that classic sort of when people really uh just Buck like it down yeah, yeah and their elbows are tucked and their hands are near their neck and everything and you get new people asking how you deal with that man you're you're just you're, yeah you're just signing yourself up for some serious yeah. unpleasantries yeah because when someone does that yep the way you deal with that is make them incredibly uncomfortable mm-hmm. with smothering and mm-hmm. doing a bunch of nastier sort of things. Yeah, like you start work, you could grab a lapel, you could fucking- Yeah, you can put a forearm across the face. like things. start punching them. Spit in their eyes. (laughs) Things that are in the gym, you could say, you know, air quotes, frowned upon, but in competition is just totally fine. So you're kind of just signing yourself up for for a whole bunch of unpleasantries yeah 100%. you know and when it's in the gym it's just training anyway i would yeah. prefer to see my students attempt an escape and get submitted than just sit there and do nothing and survive the last 30 seconds of the round yeah, yeah big, big whoop bro yeah. it's training try get out there's a couple of guys that like if you just on the the whole like um you know doing things that are frowned upon i've i've rolled with a few guys that i've submitted them a few times and it'll be like the last minute in the in the roll or whatever and they just come at you like a fucking yeah like a crazy man to try and just like get one back yeah you know and they just do everything and anything like elbows in the face fucking you know forearm in the throat go dig for that cross collar they don't really have it but they rip it on anyway it's like that's a good way f- to get fucked on even harder yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't mind I'm, i really like that you know that um I don't like being obviously, you know. Fucked on. Fucked on. I don't like a gee being ripped across my my mouth and shit. But I don't mind if someone does that to me, like comes at me with that level because yeah. it's, it's green light. It's yeah. like, yeah, sweet, green light, let's go. Yeah. You know, then we can then we can have like a really tough role. And, I, you know, I really like that. Um, yeah, it's quite fun. But yeah. I had a question. I had a question, right? I just, sorry, don't forget your question, but I just quickly want to finish one thought of you saying settle in. Yeah. Yeah. You can't – when I often say to my students, don't let them settle in, yeah. I'm, either, I'm typically I'm meaning one of two things. Either I'm saying, you know, well, it takes three seconds for them to establish the position for it to be considered a sweep or a pass yeah. or whatever. So I'm saying don't settle in like as in, man, like you got to fight for that three seconds. Okay, they've, they're still inside control. Now you can relax a little bit, compose yourself and work your escapes, right? Or the other point I'm making is if there's a massive weight difference, right? Like let's the the black belt we mentioned earlier, Carl. Carl and I aren't that far apart in weight, probably only 10 kilos, but he's a big, strong dude. He's not someone you want to let 
you know, settle their weight on you. Yeah. So often also when I'm saying don't let them settle in, it's when I'm referring to there being quite a big size or weight or strength difference. And they can establish their base. Yeah, and they it's get like, man, once you base. let them yeah. consolidate their position, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, you know? I'm like that with Joe. If Joe- um, You just can't. Big, man, big even me belt. as a white, yeah. as, a, as a black belt, I can't let Joe- <laughs> Wait, they're onto me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I cannot. If once he's settled in, I need to. I need him to hard make a mistake. Work, bro. Yeah. I need. I need him to like give me space. I wait for him to try and move his position and then explode. And you but know, now you know space. to either use your hips to free your shoulders or your shoulders to free your hips. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 100%. Your question. So my question has to do with side control. I find a lot of the time when I'm losing the, not the battle, but okay. Are so you on top or bottom? I'm on top. Right? Okay. And I, I want to talk through why my opponent's doing what they're doing, whether, you know, I've just learned a counter to it or, or what have you. Okay. So I've been in this position a lot. I'll be on, on top side control and they, my opponent is, you know, using their hips to try and free their shoulders, trying to regain their guard. Once they do, generally speaking, I'll temporarily switch my base, go to that scarf hold position mm-hmm. and then work my way up to North South. Yeah. Whenever I get to North South, without a doubt, even though my, most of my opponents by now should know what my game plan is. I'm going there specifically to get a reaction from them. And like, I'm talking about, you know, blue belts and down nine times out of 10, they all turn onto their side and give me a free Kimura. My yeah, question right. is why, what are they trying to achieve by going onto their side in, in that North South position? Are they trying to protect their neck from a choke or? Could be, you know, uh, I would, I don't know. No. So if, if I were, if you were north south on me, yeah, I typically wouldn't turn on my side, right? Right, in because unless the only reason I would be turning on my side from north south as the person on the bottom would be either a I'm thinking I can turn all the way to turtle, right? right? There's, or why would I turn on my side and stop there? Yeah. It would be to to like defend a north-south choke. Right. You know, if if you were attacking a north-south choke, turning onto my side negates that choke. But otherwise, there's kind of no reason to turn on your side short of escaping a north-south choke or, or trying to turn to turtle because your typical north-south escapes are either forcing your opponent back to side control and then escaping from there Right or Bernardo has a really good one that takes you straight from north south into half guard is another one, right? Or you like back roll up to their back, yeah. You know, so there's no sort of why to turn to your side and stay there. Yeah, you're just kind of giving that that Kimura. Kimura. Yeah. And if they do make it to turtle, which happens like on the odd occasion, uh, just to paint the picture, I'll be in north south. They'll turn to their side. I'm obviously pinning their their top arm with, say, for example, they're on their left side. So I'll pin with my left hand, fish under for the, the Kimura. And if they do manage to get to turtle with my Kimura grip, I almost, you know, nine times out of 10 again, get can a- Can still pop it out. Can still pop it out or I just get a free back take. Yeah. Because but they're I mean, too flattened, right? Yeah, but I mean, that's the risk, right? Maybe they, yeah, you know- Maybe they turn to turtle and you take their back, but maybe they turn to turtle and then they're able to grab you on a single leg and put yeah, you back down sense. or makes sit sense. back to guard. You know, it's right. you often with your escapes have to go through further treacherous waters until 
And, and that comes years. back to the the adage of it's always going to be like you were saying it's always going to be it's difficult. It's always going to be hard. You, you you know. I think I'm thinking of it in terms of being in that position and uh because this is a fairly, you know, new you know, it's my new favorite submission that I've been, you know, hitting everywhere, but I want to learn how to defend it, right? Um and I haven't seen I haven't seen a really good north south escape yet or like a good north south defense um that doesn't involve going to turtle if that makes sense yeah bro i can show you yeah let's i do mean it. i'm not gonna explain it through a podcast but you I could can show you. <laughs> <laughs> no that makes sense i was just i think the the root of the question there was trying to understand whether i was doing something good to counter my opponent's standard escape or whether the opponents were making it making like, an error, making consistent. I mean, could error. Be, yeah, it could be a bit of both. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. Right, That's so, my question. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so yeah, your your mount and side control escapes, guys. Embrace how difficult it will be and always be. Right. It'll never be easy. And yeah, really, really start thinking about using your fr- whatever has the most mobility in your body to free whatever is the most restricted and on top of those two core ideas then like your your technical escapes that you learn need to be built on that understanding because you often have to switch between them you know if my understanding of my hip mobility is you i'm using that to free my shoulders and then i'm implementing that the technical escape with that understanding and then my opponent will switch to control my hips i then need to switch to a different side control escape so it all needs to amalgamate to become something that's kind of you know instinctual but yeah really understand those those two details those two ideas those two concepts Makes right? sense. and awesome. you guys you know you guys will be out of side control and mount all the time all the time unless unless you just want to buggy choke don't even you know yeah Pull side control. Next episode, you know, how to pull side control and buggy choke bitches. (laughs) Awesome. Stay tuned for that one. Thanks for listening. Later.